Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Mind Shifters Radio with the Forgiveness Doctor, Dr. Michael Rice. I'm Jeannie Rice, your co-host. We also have co-hosts Dr. Tim Hayes and Michelle Pichette. We will share with you the wisdom of the first century Aramaic internal process of forgiveness. We offer tools and support five days a week. We will support you in building a solid foundation within yourself to live in pure love in Aramaic, Brachna. Michael is the author of the book, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? For more information about the forgiveness process, please visit www.whyagain.org. And now, welcome to the show, Mind Shifters Radio. Hello and welcome to Mind Shifters Radio. I'm Tim Hayes. I'm your host for the first hour. And today is Monday, February 26th, 2024. As always, we're grateful to everyone who's joining us here today, whether you're listening live or through the archives, as we spend another couple of hours teaching and supporting people in using some of the most powerful, effective, efficient, and accessible tools I've ever encountered. These tools are available absolutely free through the tireless efforts of Dr. Michael and Jeannie Rice on the website at whyagain.org. If you go to that website and click on the two words that say start here in the upper left-hand corner, it will take you to a page where you can download and read Chapter 24 of Dr. Michael Rice's book, his book is titled, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? That chapter of the book contains a narrative description and explanation of the primary tool in this work. That tool is called the Reality Management Worksheet, sometimes called the Reality Management Wake-Up Sheet. And it's a tool I've been using to great effect for over 19 years now to improve the quality of my life and most of my relationships and to turn any negative emotional experience I have into part of the infallible guidance system that each and every one of us has been given. You can also download the actual worksheet process itself. It's a simple PDF file. Click the link, download it, print it off, copy it as often as you'd like, and use it over and over again absolutely free. You can also go to your app store and type in the three words, Heartland Aramaic Forgiveness, and if you choose to do that, Before you're done typing the word forgiveness, you'll see the glowing heart icon. If you tap on that, it will let you download a completely free and private app that contains the Reality Management Worksheet, contains an abbreviated version of that worksheet process, and also contains a copy of the Dragon Klingon game, which is a wonderful way to introduce these tools to even younger audiences. We hope people do all of that soon and often, primarily because it tends to improve the quality of people's lives the more they actively engage the use of these tools in their lives, and secondarily because it tends to prompt comments, questions, answers, and testimonials. If you have any of those to share with us, we would appreciate you doing so by giving us a call at 563-999-3581. Once you call that number, if you press 1 on your phone, it will put the little icon of a hand by your phone number. I'll turn on the microphone and announce you by your area code, and then we can have a conversation. 
Alternatively, you can send us an email. You can email me at tjh at mindshifters-academy.org. Or you can email Jeannie at J-E-A-N-I-E at whyagain.org. That's W-H-Y-A-G-A-I-N.org. And if we get to comment or question, answer a testimonial, we will address it on the Internet show. And then as time allows, send you a notification about what day and time that occurred so that you can listen back to the archives for the feedback or input. And we appreciate whenever anybody does that because it makes it far easier for us to live into our intention with this work. The intention we have with this work is to be a service, and that's just a whole heck of a lot easier to do when we know how these things are landing for you. Also on that page, if you're there, the Wagon homepage, uh, and then click on Start Here, it'll give you access to a, a whole host of audio files of shows just like this one where people have been stepped through the worksheet process. And if you choose to listen to those, even repeatedly, they can serve as a powerful tutorial for you to help you get maximum benefit from the use of these tools in the shortest time possible. So, here we are on a Monday. Plenty of time for comments and questions, answers, testimonials. We had an unusual podcast on Friday. We had guests from San Diego, Dr. David Gruder and his wife, Lori Morse. How did that land for you? What are your observations or questions about that? I edited out that first hour and put it on the mindshiftersacademy.org website on the best of audio files page. So the top audio file on that page currently is the first hour of Friday's show with David and Lori. And my intent for the first part of today's show is to discuss and or take comments or questions about that interview. The um, Again, the prompting for that was that I had been listening to some of their the One Thing podcast and found tremendous similarities. The, the source material that both David and Lori use for their observations and their work and their podcasts is very, very similar. David has been a, a student of The Course in Miracles for quite a while, lots of years. And uh, I think he, I think he said he studied with Ken Wapnick or one of the other uh, support people who were helping the the dissemination of that work way back in the '60s. David is also. Um, a rabbi with a, a particular spiritual bent 
and um, and he's been a psychologist, both clinical and organizational. So he's got a lot of streams of experience and education feeding into his perspective. And I think as we mentioned in the show, coming up on the On Your Mind podcast, there will be two different episodes of interview with David Gruder, specifically about his project, the Center for Enlightened Self-Sovereignty. And he's trying to He's trying to do the, the same kind of thing that um, Pierre Pradervan is trying to do with Pierre's book, The um, Gentle Art of Spiritual Discernment. So helping people bring their skills and talents to bear in a focused way to help make the world a better place. And of course, as David and Lori were mentioning on Friday, they've chosen to think about the human species as going through evolution. And they've chosen to talk about um, moving from Homo sapien to Homo spiritus, the idea of human as spirit. And... Um, that's he's he's got quite the aspirations for being a repository for information and tools and it's similar in some ways to what Michael Rice has done with his full body of work that includes things like the reality management worksheet, the mind goal management sheet, the secondary purpose worksheet the uh, codependence interdependence worksheet, the mind shifter tool. All these various tools that are aiming at helping people create a whole system of self awareness and growth and effectiveness and um, so that's that's available through the T-H-E-C-E-S-S dot com the Center for Enlightened Self-Sovereignty and as Lori was talking about she boldly steps right out there and says you're you are as a as an entity as a consciousness as a soul you are the same in potential as any master who's ever lived your your purpose for being here might be said to be to birth a Christ mind to step into greatness and that's very, very similar to what the way of mastery is leading us to as we're reading it with commentary and trying to get us to understand that 
there isn't any gap other than the gap of thought, and yes, you are the creator of that thought. You're the one who thinks the thought that keeps you either connected to or separated from any other consciousness, whether it's the Christ consciousness or you know, a high school friend or anyone anywhere in any dimension of reality. You are no farther away from anyone than the width of a thought and you are the creator of that thought. You are the one who chooses those thoughts that either keep you connected to people, entities, souls, consciousness, or keep you in an experience of being separated from them. And that's our our reason for coming back time and again to the way of mastery is the idea of waking up to what is our true potential. What can we do to grow into that, to expand our true potential, and to choose every time we stop and look at our lives and say, I don't really like what's happening here, to choose differently. Because that is our our option as creators. We always have the option to choose again, as Diedrich Wolzak and the Course in Miracles would say. So I had somebody comment that the show on Friday flowed so well it at times it seemed like it was scripted, and I can assure you it wasn't scripted in the least. I had had almost no um, prep work or talk with either Lori or Dr. Gruder. I had offered to answer questions or you know, plan things out, and they said, no, let's just have a conversation. So... Hopefully that was useful. I've also recently been made aware that the 150-some episodes of the On Your Mind podcast, which are rather... um, They're all over the map in terms of topic and... Uh, interviewee, etc. And what's happened is a young man with knowledge of artificial intelligence and its ability to help automate things has been enlisted to help make that series of podcasts more accessible and so one of the things that he's done already is to create a spreadsheet with all the podcasts in it and now that's searchable and now the next step is that they're trying to create an interface where anybody who goes to the website the journeystream.org slash podcast website or the web podcast page on the journeystream.org 
website, that they'll be able to simply um, click a button and start typing in any kind of search parameters they might have. So if you have, would have a question about psychosis in young people or you have a question about um, inpatient support for navigating a mental health challenge with little or no medication or if you have a question about um, is there a way to use yoga for trauma work or if you have a question about mental health and education uh, or you know lived experience with bipolar disorder or that you should be able to type into this search engine and have it quickly list for you any possible interviews that we've done with people who might have expertise that would benefit you. Whether it's from a functional medicine perspective or an integrative medicine perspective or a music perspective, So that's something that uh, as soon as it comes available, I will make available. But I'm also offering that since I already have access to the spreadsheet and I can search through the spreadsheet if you have a question or a comment about, gee, did you, have you ever done any podcasts related to X, Y, or Z topic? I can answer that for you pretty quickly and then send you a link to a page, a separate page that just has that interview on it without all of the other distracting material. So if that's of interest or you have any question about, hey, Dr. Tim, have you interviewed anybody who's got expertise in this particular area? Let me know and I'll be able to come up with an answer for you far more quickly than in the past. So again, our call-in number is 563-999-3581. If you call that number and press 1, we can have a conversation. I also spent some time over the weekend working to get up to speed on the MindShiftersAcademy.org. I had... Um, fallen quite a bit behind with uploading the shows where we are reading from the way of mastery and um, they aren't all labeled but most of them are up there now I'm, I'm only missing about 10 days and I'll get to that as time allows in the meantime we have plenty of time for comments or questions or we can keep reading in the way of mastery, which the last time we read, we'd finished Lesson 13. And Lesson 14 is labeled, The Wise Use of Time. The Wise Use of Time. And since there are no hands up, I'll continue reading. The text in Lesson 14 reads, 
we trust that this moment finds you willing to be wholly, totally, completely where you are. We would trust then that in this moment, you are willing to assume responsibility for the choices you have made. The choices that have literally created the environment that you are experiencing in this moment. Everything about this. If you're sitting in a chair, it's the chair. If you're in a room, it's the walls around you. The things that hang on those walls, the individuals with whom you find yourself in close proximity, the individuals with whom you find yourself in relationship, the individuals with whom you work, those with whom you play, those with whom you share. We would trust that in this moment, you find yourself as the holy child of the Creator at play in the kingdom of Christ. If not, if you're not aware of this within yourself, or you're thinking to yourself, well, that's not quite the perspective from which I was beginning my reading of this lesson. I thought I was going to sit down and listen to Christ. If there's some element of that, some touch or some trace within you of that perspective, then please stop right now, take a pause, and as you do so, abide by yourself. Take several deep breaths. If you wish, you can go back to the five-minute exercise of simply being the presence of Christ. For well do we perceive that many of you have already forgotten that that exercise exists. If you choose to go back to that exercise at the end of the five minutes, simply remind yourself that what is true always is always true. And that truth is that only capital L love is real. And what is real cannot be threatened by what does not truly exist. In each moment in which your perceptions are less than flowing from the remembrance of who you are, in each of those moments you have been immersed in something that is unreal. When you notice this, you're free to take the time and use it constructively by returning to the truth. Pause in your reading, if you must. We will be going nowhere. We'll wait right here until you have found a way to engage this work as one who is awake in and as Christ. The text goes on. The way of transformation is simple. 
for the way of efforting one's way into the kingdom cannot flow from the guidance of the Holy Spirit. The way of transformation is easy. It is simple. It is easy and without effort, as is the way of the heart. The text goes on and says, for where there is effort... There is a separate will called the ego. And that will believes itself to be and would love to convince you of this. It believes that it is small and powerless and knows that it is pervaded by fear. Capital L, love, requires no effort. Only the little willingness necessary to allow capital L love to flow from the depth of your being through you so that it might be extended throughout creation. Beloved friends, the way of transformation requires only that you extend to yourself the willingness necessary to put into practice using time differently. No, it does not mean that you have to quit your job and go live in a little hut on top of a mountain somewhere. The fact is, even if you did that, you may not use time any differently than you're doing it now. It does require that you begin with the simple recognition that there can be no set of perceived circumstances that truly have the power to separate you from your God. No set of circumstances, no set of relationships, not the weather, not the amount of money that you're allowing yourself to receive for the expenditure of your time. There is nothing in the world that has the power to separate you from your connectedness to all of creation. You do have the ability to create the dream of separation because you are the one who holds dominion over all things. What does this idea of dominion mean? It means that you are the one who is the source of the power that can choose how you will see what is around you, how you will perceive it, and what you will believe most about it. You are the one with the power to penetrate the illusory veil of the world and see the heart, the essence, the truth, the Christ child in everything. In a blade of grass, in the cry of a child, in the barking of a dog, or even the coming of the male with the bills. Therefore, the way of transformation does not require that you change your circumstances. 
it merely requires that you change your attitude toward them by recognizing that they are harmless, by recognizing that you have called all things to yourself. It's an attitude adjustment. There are many that you must sit around and ponder why you did this and why you did that. I say unto you, all that is required is to begin with this little willingness to accept that in the great mystery of consciousness, you are the power and the source for all that you think, all that you see, all that you feel, and all that you would be and do. You're the source of it. You abide in that freedom constantly. So the way of transformation then rests simply on that. And here's a a set of quotes. How will I decide to use my time? Finding myself here in this moment, can I remember that I'm free to see things differently? I'm free to look lovingly upon the world. I do not need to wait for something outside of myself to create a stimulus that elicits a loving response. Close quotes. You do not need to wait for your mate to come and give you the hug that you want so much. You do not need to wait until your mother calls you on the phone and begs for your forgiveness for how cruelly she treated you when you were growing up. You do not need to wait until the current president is no longer in the White House. You do not need to wait for the contest that comes in the mail to make you the winner that brings you millions of dollars. You do not need to wait for that to happen. Right now, you are the one who is free. But perhaps you have imprisoned yourself by waiting for love to show up outside of you to trigger a response within you. Maybe you're waiting for that response to get triggered, and when you feel it or recognize it, that you finally feel loved or loving. Those that know aloneness are not limited in extending love. For those that know loneliness yet retain the power to make the decision to extend love. It can never be taken from you. So here's a simple exercise we wish to give you. When next you find yourself alone, and perhaps just feeling a little lonely, and you notice that the mind is spinning with thoughts, and you're feeling perhaps just a little weak and out of sorts, (laughs) here's an exercise you can't really do anymore, but you can find a, a technologically advanced way to do this. Go pick up a telephone book, 
take three deep breaths, and with each breath say to yourself, quote, in reality, I remain as I am created to be. I am the holy child of creation, close quotes. After you've done that with three deep breaths, and after each breath you've said this phrase, these two sentences, in reality, I remain as I am created to be. I am the holy child of creation. Then merely open the phone book, place your hand on one of the pages with the many names and numbers, and just feel your way to a specific name and number. You will know the feeling. And then, for the fun of it, just call that person. And when they answer the phone, say, I'm not here to sell you anything. I just need about 15 seconds of your time. I know you've never met me, but I was just sitting in my chair remembering the truth that is true always, and I'm calling to remind you that you are loved by the Creator. You have never failed. You've never done anything wrong. You remained pure and innocent even now. And I just wanted to give my blessings to you. Have a nice day. Goodbye. For you see, the world in which you live has but one purpose. It is the same purpose that all dimensions of creation have. Their purpose is to be the extension of the Creator's love. For that is what creation is. And then to extend that love from the world, from that dimension, each and every one of you has but one treasure, only one treasure. It is not your child. It is not your spouse. It is not the new car in the garage. Your treasure is your reality as the unlimited, holy, and only begotten offspring of the Creator. You are a field of consciousness through which the creation extends itself. So, here's the call in the very beginning of this lesson. We're going to dive a little deeper. So don't read this. Don't listen to this in a distracted way. Because the only value that's going to come from this is going to come from you Letting some of these truths into your life at deeper and deeper and deeper levels. And if you're willing to do that, then you will be using time wisely to grow in your awareness of your true nature and your purpose in the world. And this is very, very clear, very specific. It's not that you have a different purpose than anybody else. Everyone's purpose is the same. As a part of the creation, you are extending the flow of creative energy. That's your purpose, to extend the creation, to be part of creation and extend it. 
And if you're doing that with clarity, you will be extending the love of creation. You will be extending peace, joy, compassion, growth, aliveness. Just as creation itself extends itself in all of these different areas in complete flow. Nothing's held back. No judgments are passed. No conditions are needed. It's just happening. That creation itself is being extended. And as that happens, and you're a part of it, you fulfill your purpose. Using time wisely. To begin, using time wisely means recognizing that you are creating every time you focus your mind energy on one thing or another. And every time you create a belief in or a judgment of separation, you're communicating to the world that that's what you value. You value judgment and you value illusion and you value separation. And then this lesson is asking us to step into Shifting the focus of your consciousness. Asking yourself what's really true. Asking yourself, how can I create differently? What if there's some truth to this writing in this book, in The Way of Mastery? What if every time I choose to focus my conscious awareness on something, I create more of it? What if I shift the focus of my conscious awareness moment to moment and therefore create a different experience of life moment to moment? Let me play with that. Let me practice. That, according to this book, according to these teachings, that is a wise use of time. Having the willingness to allow the flow. Having the willingness to create differently moment to moment. Having the willingness to step into the experience of myself as the creator of my experience of life. That's what we're being called into. And as we slow down and breathe into that and actually let ourselves experience that, make note of it. And as it recommended in the way of transformation, we have a notebook. We can then make notes about how does that shift our experience? What is it like to step into creating my experience differently?
The next section is titled, Your Joy is Found in Extending Your Treasure. Remember, they just finished saying that your only treasure is not your possessions and not your relationships. It is the reality that you are part of the creative flow. The text reads, that means that if this is your only treasure, your greatest joy will be discovered as you cultivate within yourself the habits of mind, the habits of body, and the habits of choice that begin to align what you think, what you see, and what you do, align all of that with the truth that is true always. For your joy will be found as you recognize that you exist to extend your treasure. As you do so, you immediately add to the Creator's treasure. And the Creator's only will is to extend that which it is forever, unbounded, unlimited. For creation is but love, is but the creative energy being extended and expanded over and over and over again. The text goes on and says, the grand thing about capital L love is this. It does not require any set of conditions to exist before it does. So how is this different from some of the things you experience in life? Well, as a body, there are certain conditions that must exist before the body can be satiated with food or water. There must be certain conditions that must be met before the body stops shivering against the cold. Your world is based on the topsy-turvy perception that conditions must be met before there can be a choice for peace instead of war, for forgiveness instead of judgment, for capital L, love instead of fear. And therefore, you think, when the conditions outside of me change, then I'll make the choice for love. I have often said that the world is merely the reflection of the insane choice to deny love, and to be devoted to fear. The world is diametrically opposed to the capital T truth of the kingdom. The world of perception that you experience is the opposite of capital R reality. The way of transformation rests on the complete reversal of the thought system that you have learned in the world. But that thought system is not merely the practice of new ideas that are repeated ad nauseum in the mind. The reversal of thought must permeate the entire field of the body-mind. And the entire field of the body-mind is nothing more than the field of your consciousness. And this change must permeate that field so that you know, you feel it in your bones that a change has occurred. 
So when you are in any set of circumstances that once seemed to elicit judgment or fear or anger or hurt or sadness, then you recognize the following, quote, my goodness, my whole body feels different. I just feel like being loving. I feel totally safe. What's the big deal here? Oh, you know, I remember when these kinds of circumstances would have elicited sadness or hurt or anger or fear. And now, I just think it's a beautiful place to be because here I can extend the love of Christ. Wow, what a joy. What a treasure. Thank goodness I have this moment in which I can be the blessing that blesses this world. Close quotes. This is a goal. To practice extending love in more and more difficult constraint sets, as they talk about in the book A Walk in the Physical with Christian Sundberg. And I can do that and practice doing it so that one day I wake up and realize, you know what? I remember when these kind of circumstances would have elicited hurt and sadness and fear and anger, but now I can choose to experience this as a beautiful place to be because I have the opportunity to extend the love of the Christ mind right now. I can be the one to bless the world in this moment. The text goes on and asks, what is the world if not each moment of relationship in which you find yourself? That's what you are. Your world is your experience of it and nothing else. The text goes on and says, beloved friends, The use of time is pivotal. The use of time determines at all levels what you will experience in your tomorrows. Long after the body ceases to be the teaching and learning device that you are most attached to, long after the body dies, you will indeed be continually stepping into your tomorrows. For you are that sunbeam sent forth from the sun, from the mind of the creator. And that light never stops traveling. To use a spatial term, you will never cease to create. You will never cease to experience. The only choice you'll ever have is this, quote, Will I assume responsibility for doing whatever I must do to eradicate every misperception, every obstacle to the presence of love, every limited belief I have ever learned about anyone or anything, especially myself? Will I choose to assume the responsibility for cultivating that perfect remembrance 
that I and my father are one so that I can perceive the real world that shines through everything? Will I? When will I? When will I assume responsibility for cultivating that perfect remembrance that I and my creator are one so that I can perceive the real world, the truth of the world, the truth of the actuality that shines through everyone and everything. Close quotes. That is the actuality that is present in the very material that makes up the chair in which you're sitting. The actuality literally pervades the body so that you think it's dense and hard, or perhaps if you've not been exercising, it's a little soft. The point is, there is nothing that you see that is not pervaded by the radiance of the Creator's holy presence. Nothing. A stone, a leaf, a piece of paper blown by the wind, even the shouting of fear and anger from anyone Yet, this contains within it, if you would receive it, the perfect love of creation. For your father does not ever recoil or withdraw from the unlimited and perfect extension of itself. And the creation is but love. If you did not abide totally and completely in that love, capital L love, in this moment, you would immediately cease to exist. I don't mean just die. I, I mean literally cease to exist. There would be no trace of thought or memory in any mind of you. It is only because of the energy of creation and consciousness that you are. That is why I once said, quote, of myself, I can do nothing, but the Father through me does these things. I did not say, I learned these things of my Father, and now I am the maker and the doer. The truth is the acknowledgement of complete helplessness, complete dependency. I eradicated my any any perception of mine that I was a self separate from the creator. I stopped giving authority to that tiny little gnat shouting at the universe and the vastness of space. My will be done. So, breathing, softening, recognizing that consciousness itself is your birthright and everything about your life experience is being created through consciousness. And you've been given dominion over your use of consciousness. And in this particular section of the Way of Mastery, they're inviting us to use time wisely to create 
the experience of extending that creative energy, extending love moment to moment. So 563-999-3581, if you call that number and press 1 on your phone, we can have a conversation. We have just a few minutes left before I start the second hour. Area code 585, you're in the air. Who do we have and how can we support you? Area code 585, is this an intentional request for speaking or did you accidentally hit number one on your phone? So, since we don't have any comments or questions, our second hour today is going to be a recording. I do not know what Michael and Jeannie are up to, but they've asked me to play a recording today. So um, we'll be playing Aramaicisms Part 2. It's one month since they played Aramaicisms Part 1. I'll remind us all that we come from love. We're made of the stuff that we call love. We actually are love, and everything else is false. And this is your second hour. Kings won't like it if people are not controllable and live out of their nine-bit mind. And by and large, the nine-bit minds developed on the planet come from hostility and fear. As Dale was sharing, he's at this conference, and here are these guys arguing, raging at each other over the meaning of words. Rather than, what if we actually sat and, and experienced ourselves as the presence of love and let ourselves be taught. This elemental force that comes to us by definition in Aramaic will teach us the truth. You know, we're here to connect each person not to some king's representative who wants to control your life and the output of your wealth, but rather we're here to connect you with the spirit of truth the energy that can guide you from the whole creation as to exactly what's coming down the pike and how to function out of that. And that makes you quite literally the offspring of God. You're designed to be there. Paul referred to it as the mind of Christ. Now Paul had difficulty explaining how to live in that mind You'll notice that when the stress was up and the chips are down, Paul says, why is it the things I would do, the experience I've had of full-blown light and love, I cannot do, and the things I hate are what I do. He did not know how to teach the process of forgiveness to release people from their carbon-based memory past and allow them to live in the mind that he spoke about wanting to get to, but didn't know how to get there. Why? He didn't understand the how-to. He never met the man. And he came from a mindset. If you think of who Paul was, Paul was basically a person who hunted and killed people for their religious beliefs. That's the base he comes from. That's a huge piece of work to break through from that kind of past. And when he's up against it, Paul says, I don't know how to do it. Here I am doing the things I hate again. We're going to talk a little later about the forgiveness process and how it empties out carbon-based memory, and frees us so that we are available to this mind. 
which if you look at the mind of Christ, Dale, what, uh, what would be the best Aramaic well, understanding of that? You know, it, 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 it's an intriguing thought because there's, really, uh, there's really not a word in Aramaic that is exactly equivalent to Christos. Christos is an interesting term in Greek because what, what, if you, let's say you go to some kind of a most theological institutions, what are you usually told that Christ means? Anybody know? Christos. The first? Anointed one. There we go. Anybody know what anointing is? It's Christian, right? <laughs> yeah, they use it. Anybody know where anointing comes from? It comes from Egypt. Now, anointing was the sacramental process of uh, well, maybe we'll get later into this, but uh, of putting a sacred oil in a clockwise motion on what's called the third eye, the sixth chakra. I'll mention that a little later. Um, and what it was was as the third eye was opened, directly behind it is the pine cone known as the pineal gland in the geographic center of the brain. Um, by opening the third eye, it stimulated the opening of what was called the Christos chakra, which is the crown, which is where the crown of thorns, which is the sun rays, which is the halo. Intriguingly, the tongues of light. Yes. After the disciples were breathed. Yes, exactly. Exa or even better, let's look at this one. Let's look at some anti-Semitism. I'm getting excited now. Moses comes down off the mountain the second time, getting the, the rest of the Ten Commandments, and he's got horns! Intriguingly, if you look at like the, 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 uh, the statues from, um, what is it, Michelangelo? Moses has horns. If you look in lots of churches, Moses has horns. Let's talk look about the that Justice little. Building. Oh yeah, in Here. the U.S. Justice Building. Now, um, let's talk about first how that started. Uh, in Jerome's Latin Vulgate, which was, that was when the Bible was translated from, let me briefly say this before I say this. Uh, if you grew up in a Christian church, you did not grow up with the Old Testament that Jesus would have grown up with. You grew up with the Septuagint, okay? You grew up with a Greek translation that ha and Septuagint is a word in 70, that, or 70, in Greek that means 70, which is how many scholars worked on it over the course of 200 years. It was when it, the Torah was taken from Hebrew into Greek and the rabbis of the day were screaming their brains out saying this is the absolute worst thing that could happen to the history of humanity because now people are going to think that only the top level peshat obvious m metaphorical storyline is the only real truth here and they're never going to see the Ramez, the Darash, and the Saad. We're going to talk about what that is later. Pardes, which is an acronym of the four levels of translation that eventually came into the word paradise. Created the word paradise. Saw it at the deepest level. Now, here it is, bring in just one little nuance of stories and all of a sudden people think it's about Adam and Eve and, and a snake and Cain and Abel having no clue about what's under that. We're going to go a lot deeper into that tomorrow. But what we start getting into here in the case of, uh, um, of Moses, uh, the, the, is it, what is it? I'm trying to, I wrote it down. Cornuta. Cornuta or Cornata? Cornuta is the Latin word that literally means horns. Now, interesting, uh, in Hebrew... The root word is karen, the word is Quran. Quran, interesting. And what that means is filaments or... Emanations of light. What's that? Emanations of Emanations light. Emanations of light. Filaments of light. Now, what was it he just did? He came down off the mountain. 
Maybe he did actually walk down off of a physical mountain, but we're looking at a very common Gnostic idiom. When one communes with God, it's the opening of the temple. You bring the temple, the haikla, the energy system, the body temple, it gets opened. You take it to the pinnacle of the temple. Okay? The pinnacle of the temple doesn't necessarily mean that Jesus climbed up a bunch of bricks and stood at the top. Okay, I know that's cute. We're looking at a very common Gnostic idiom here. The pinnacle of the temple is the opening where you take the energy system to the place where, much like a balloon, you blow into a balloon and it gets to that point where it's like max capacity and all of a sudden you can see the places where it's thin and the places where it's a little bit thicker. It's the point of entropy, which means that unless you have willingness to allow any kind of residues in the system to be forgiven and removed, it's not going to be able to open anymore. Okay? It's only going to be able to open when you remove whatever blocks there are to its expansion. Now, when he's up here wide open and comes down, he's obviously going to be... Anybody ever have a great meditation or your friend was in a deep meditation and you look and they're just... Remember Maria? The radiation of light? Interesting. Somehow, thanks to Jerome, bless your heart, my friend, uh, it turns into Moses having horns which turns into an anti-Semitism that exists to this day. There's a great episode of Little House on the Prairie from season five. Um, it's embarrassing that I know this, but um, where uh, Albert was working for, Albert Engels was working for this old Jewish man who made caskets, and Nellie and Willie Olson were like, oh, well, my mom told me that you know, all Jews have horns. So Albert went and took one of the guy's hats and, and cut out two little holes in the top of the hat and took it to them. Oh my God, look! You know, look at it. So they went and uh, Nellie and Willie went and snuck up to the guy's workshop one afternoon and Albert was on the other side of the window with these ram's horns and like as soon as they opened the window to look in, he goes, and he goes screaming, running for like two miles. But that's the kind of insane thing that are based on something that's not even accurate or true. And I'll say this, and I can say this with an open heart and conscious, active, present love. Many of the people who are out there representing Christianity even for six or seven decades, have no actual idea, not even the slightest clue of its actual, authentic history. They don't know about King James. If you're homophobic and you love King James, you might want to research the guy's family, okay? You might want to research him specifically and the relationships in his life. Ignorance is not bliss. Ignorance is blindness. I get a little bit amped about this because I, don't, I do understand why people don't look because they don't know how to forgive what comes up when that process happens. Difficult. Now, here's the thing. Yeshua said, if I gave you a light, would you hide that light below what? Bushel basket. A bushel basket. Let me tell you a little bit about the word bushel in Aramaic. Okay? These are all the beliefs that we hold. This is our carbon-based memory, the 666. I believe that Jesus was the only begotten Son of God. I believe that, um, whatever, we're born in original sin. Has anybody ever seen that line in the Bible? It's not there. It actually says you're born as the original blessing of life itself. Huh. It's a little different, isn't it? We just eat the menu served and we never get to the meal, don't we? All these different beliefs that we put on and then we wonder why we can't see anything anymore. Everything that we believe, everything we've got figured out. I'm an expert now on Jesus or the Bible. There's no humility. There's no open space. So what do we start doing? When we start forgiving, everybody sees that light now, right? It's obvious. Probably not. Anybody now? See the light? No? Oh, come on now. It's only three beliefs. 
This is your BS, as Michael calls it, your belief systems. You mean you're looking at still through a glass darkly? Very darkly. Ah, oh, I got it. Very darkly. Okay, there's only one belief left. Everybody see that light? Does anybody see the light? Now, here's what happens. Instead of trying to add more into the system to convince yourself how correct you are, and I've got it all figured out, when you actually start removing the roots of the bushel basket, bushel in Aramaic is the word sata, sata. The root is sta, which means to slide, fall, or fragment something away from its source. Like as an example, if I'm standing next to a mountain and there's a rock and I take the rock off the mountain, if I say this is a rock, that's a mountain, not honoring that the rock is the mountain, that is what sata means. That's also what a blasphemy is. It means to remove something from its true source and to no longer see its relationship. Sata is the root of the word seitana, which is a word in Aramaic that means a being divided against itself. The character of Satan came hundreds of years later. The modern idea that Christianity has of hell, does anybody know where that comes from? Was it in the Jesus teachings? Was it even in the Greek Jesus teachings? No, it was not. Does anybody know where it comes from? Dante. Dante's Inferno, the Passion Play, the Divine Play, had nothing to do with the Jesus teachings. Do people know these things? Now here's what happens though, when you start removing bushel baskets, all of a sudden the light starts showing up. And you start, instead of trying to add things in, you start realizing that this is about removal. But what happens is as humanity starts to do this with these lights, all of a sudden humans start shining and glowing. And you can call that one the Buddha. Let's say this one's Krishna. Was Krishna an actual person? This one's Jesus, but we're in the West, so it's got to be a really big one. There's Jesus, right? Paramahansa Yogananda, a little more modern. Eckhart Tolle, the big guy. How many lights are there? One. Let me ask you another question real briefly before Michael chimes in. Before you go with that one, let's listen to, to Einstein where he says, if you think you're separate or separated from the rest of humanity, you're living in an optical delusion. Uh, what did Dale just show us? How the optical delusion works. The bushel basket. Stop covering your light with hostility and fear. King's teachings. You know, there's an, a sister word in Arabic of Satana. Satan is in Arabic also. Anybody know what the sister word in Arabic is for Satana, the being divided against itself? Sounds like this, jihad. There's two levels of jihad, the inner jihad, which is the inner higher turmoil, and the outer jihad, or the lower jihad. And it's amazing because in there, Muhammad says clearly in the Quran, I can guarantee you one thing, 99.9% .9 of the evangelical Christians that are slamming the Quran and... and and uh, Islam have probably never read the thing. They've probably never read it. But it's clear that Muhammad says that you must first align that inner higher jihad, that which is within, before you project it out. And that's the funny thing. If it's aligned within, there's nothing to project out. And Yeshua light... is mentioned more often in the Quran than Muhammad is. Absolutely. And Moses is in there. How many lights do I have? Not a trick question. Just one, right? You see the board? That's like humanity. We've got billions of souls on planet Earth. We are so sure that we're all so separate. And yet, how many lights are there? One. The more bushels we remove, that's how the new Earth happens. It's not about us creating something. It's actually about us removing the blocks 
removing the blocks that allow its natural expression. That's what forgiveness is. And the optical delusion comes from carbon-based memory and shows up in the 9-bit mind. And so when we're stuck in that 9-bit mind, we're actually stuck. There's, a, there's a, an interesting quote I found recently on the CIA website where they're working to understand how to create the best perception possible for their intelligence agents. And here's what the CIA is saying. We do not record reality. We generate reality. Reality for each person is generated by whatever fires in carbon-based memory literally is an energy that is painted on the inside of our eyeballs and we've been taught by kings and by the world that the picture we're looking on the, at the, in, on the inside of our eyeballs is actually out there and it is not. Everything you've ever seen through your body's eyes is generated by the content of your mind and is a reflection of the content of your mind. And if hostility or fear is resonated in your carbon-based memory system, then you will create pictures of what you think are other people and you'll think you're actually looking at them when you're looking at a product of what's firing within you, painted on the inside of your eyeballs, and the energy of that hostility or fear emits a literal high-energy wave that is sprayed, measurable high-energy wave, that is sprayed on whoever you're looking at. If with your perception, that which you generate from within you, you refuse to be responsible and remove or forgive the content of hostility or fear, then you spray the acid of hostility or fear on the people you're looking at. How many who have the acid of hostility or fear sprayed upon them find that they respond really wonderfully to that and, and like it a lot and like to be around who, people who do that? No, that's just ridiculous. Yeshua speaks about the first law being a filter in the frontal lobes of the brain over intentions that allows only intentions keyed to love to be used to build these pictures. And now, when you follow that law, when you understand that that's what opens the space for human life to happen, then what you're spraying on all the world with pictures based in that is literally the active presence of love. Guess what's going to happen when you do that? People are going to respond differently. It's going to look miraculous. Gee, I did some forgiveness and removed some of my hostility or fear, and this person all of a sudden has become more loving with me. It's miraculous. It's not miraculous. You stop spraying the acid of hostility or fear on them and started spraying the active presence of love, the presence of your human life and extending that energy out. It's a measurable energy field. Dale has put some Aramaic letters on the board. Interesting, the Aramaic letters are 3D shadows of the spin of the atomic structure of the table of the elements. It's the only language on the planet that's based in elemental forces. And every other language 
I realized when uh, Jeannie and I, we did seven countries last year, and about our third country, I realized that these people are speaking languages, and I don't have a clue what they're saying, but they seem to know what you know, this person is saying to them when they speak that language. And what occurred to me in about the third country is, ah, these languages are all Babel. We're babbling right now. This is Babel. We made something up what? to represent something, and what? we try to... Pardon me? What? 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 <laughs> <laughs> and and we, we try to make it the end-all and the be-all, but it doesn't represent the creation. It doesn't represent those elemental forces. Aramaic does, and that gives it a whole... And we'll talk about Rachma, we'll talk about Rukha as the elemental forces, so... Yeah, right here I've got, well, I've got two different words. Well, it's really the same word, um, but this one is more in syllables, okay? The word here is rochma, rochma, okay? Now, it's got three, you're going to see like the aleph here that's not included in the word down here. The first syllable sounds like this, ra, and that ra sound means a shining forth of heat and light, okay? It's the same as the word ray, Ray is also a Semitic root. That means shining forth of heat and light. Ray, Ra, Ora is an Aramaic root. Um, Raya, the rays, the sun rays, the crown of thorns. So this right here is a shining forth of light and heat, which is where we've got the Reish right here. Intriguingly, um, we're going to talk a little bit more about this in relation to the Torah tomorrow when we've got more time. Right here in the middle, which is this, we have hum, hum. That sound is a glottal stop. I'm originally from New Jersey. If you start a word with like hashuka, which is the word darkness, people either backhand you or run because they don't like the sound. But hum is the old Hebrew word for womb, okay, or interior place, center of being. Now, womb doesn't necessarily just mean the middle of the body. It also means the spiritual center, one of the things I love to use is from St. Augustine, which sometimes I say when I have that light pen, which is that God is a, a circle whose center is everywhere, but whose circumference is nowhere. I'll talk a little bit more about that tomorrow in a Semitic term called surfing the leading edge of the cosmos. We'll get to that. Um, but we've got Ra, shining forth of light and heat from whom the center point or the inner spiritual womb, and the last sound is Ma. What does Ma mean? Just guess. Intriguingly, with linguists and anthropologists across the earth, ma is the sound most often uttered by a child in relation to the maternal figure in its life, whether it's in that language or not. Children naturally look at the mother and say ma. So you've got bir essentially like a birthing from the inner womb, that shining forth of light and heat. Now let me say a little funny stuff here. Looking at this coming from... Uh, in this Greek Septuagint, they had some problems here because with this being the spiritual center and the womb, there's also something behind the womb. What's right in this area here? The gut, the stomach. How about the intestines? Now, it's funny because you can actually look, and I have a great list. I probably should have brought these that I got from Rocco Erico years ago. Uh, like as an example, I believe this was Song of Solomon. Literally, it says this in the Septuagint, which is in the King James Bible to, to this day. It says, her husband put his hand in the hole of the door. Now, intriguingly, uh, this is, he's getting ready to leave on like a journey for many, many months or possibly longer. I believe he's a salesman. I don't remember. 
and she's like going through that thing because he's leaving. And it says, her husband put his hand in the hole of the door and her bowels moved for him. Does this sound good? Sound like a good... Uh... I don't think he's going to be coming home as soon as she thought he would. Okay, so he put his hand in the hole of the door to leave and she had a bowel movement. Um, that's a bad translation. Splugsnot would be the word in Greek, okay? Now, intriguingly, um, here's the thing, though. It's not wrong, but it's also not right. Another aspect, does anybody know where the word dude comes from? Dude's an Aramaic word. Does anybody know what dude means? You used it when you were a kid. We were talking about dude earlier in terms of cowboy. It means from the bowels. It's an Aramaic term. Interesting. How many people knew that? So when people come up and say, dude, I'm like, yeah. Now, here's the thing, though. What's another, way to, well, what's another way to phrase that? You know, When her husband put his hand in the hole of the door, she may never see him again. The example I give is a friend of mine, Tammy, who I grew up down the street with uh, in New Jersey, and she now lives in California, and her son has been all these, on all these tours of duty over to the Middle East uh, and into Asia. And there's... there's uh, there was a time when she didn't know he was coming home. Her husband knew. She didn't know. And she just opens the door and her husband's standing behind her and she's like, like just absolutely wide open, seeing the face of that which you long for. That, again, is rachma. Rachma is the primary word for love in Aramaic and it's also the primary word for friend. Meaning that I recognize that, as, much like namaste, or in the words of Crazy Horse, Tashunko Witko from the Lakota, that I salute the light within your eyes where the whole universe dwells because when you are at that center within you and I am at that place within me, we are one. And Rachma is a word that is completely, let's just be clear, completely lost in modern Christianity. It just isn't there. It's had so many bushel baskets piled on top that the teaching's gone. You know, back several years ago, we met with and worked a little bit with a group of Aramaic, native Aramaic-speaking peoples in Southern California, and we asked them about this word, rachma, and they said that in their tradition, the meaning had been lost. They didn't know what it meant, but that their tradition said it was the most pre precious jewel that you could possess, and in fact is perhaps it's thought to be the tradition in marriage of a ring with jewels on it that it, it symbolized that state and it's two, twofold it is this filter that in the frontal lobes of our brain <coughs> intentions are stored and there are basically three classes of intention there are intentions based in hostility which are destructive their intentions based in fear, which are negative, and their intentions based in rachma, which are loving. When that filter is set, and this is what Yeshua says, when they ask him, what's most important in all this stuff you call law? And law has nothing to do with the rule of a superior. There's nothing to obey in the law. It's just having relationship with how things happen. You know, the law of gravity never punished anybody for stepping off a cliff. The law of gravity doesn't care what you think about it. It doesn't care whether you like it or you don't like it. You can't say tomorrow morning, I don't like the law of gravity, so I think I'm going to have my feet go up instead of go down. It's not <laughs> going to happen. The law of gravity just happens. All of these things are what happens. So when they say to Yeshua, what's most important in the law? He says, and, and they're basically asking him, how do you have a human life? 
He says you must have Rachma. Here's how it happens. Your whole device, your body-mind unit, your mode of expression, the, things that, the thing that generates your picture on the world will be based in love. Your human life is the most important thing you could have. And when you look at the genius of that, you know, we see so many people who've, who've been basically hurt or experienced hurt within the context of their religious practice and so have blown it off. And, and you know, I've heard them speak about this, this silly book that comes from thousands of years ago that is just so ridiculous and so primitive. And they don't have a clue what's there, the genius that's there in understanding how the energy patterns of this universe works and how we interface with it. And the first step is that of Rachma. It's the gateway that human life, that energy you experienced as a newborn energy, enters the form and it keeps the whole perceptual system on track with love, which is your highest and best. And I promise you, if you're spraying love through your perception on everybody that you see, you're going to have a whole lot better time than if you're in that hostility and fear game and spraying that into your world. And so the genius of understanding how a human life works, that's all law is about. What's the first law? Rachma. Well, speaking of the first law, there's three versions of what's called the two commandments in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Matai, Luca, or Matai Marcus, and Luca. Uh, they're all different. In, what one, in two cases, Jesus, says, Jesus, Yeshua, says it in response to a question, almost a challenge, really, a test. Um, and in the third one, the scribe actually recites it back as Yeshua says, you know, well, how do you read it? And he says it back to him. Uh, intriguingly, though, he's asked, what's the greatest of the nomosa? Now, nomosa yeah. is an interesting one. Um, let me actually, I want to hand this back to you for that, and then I'm going to expand customs. on what you say. Yeah, basically, what are the customs of the people? So, the scholars of the day have forgotten that there's a thing called cause law, and they're into effect rules. And so they say to him, what's most important in the nemosa? And he doesn't answer the most important thing in the nemosa. He answers the most important thing in the orita. He changes it. And it's interesting that one place where the scribe, it's in Luke, the scribe stands up to teach him. He says, you know, how do I inherit eternal life? And Yeshua knows this guy already knows and can parrot all the words. He's got it all in his head. And so he turns it back to the guy, and the guy parrots back the words, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And, and if you read that passage, you'll notice Yeshua doesn't say, that's the right answer. He says, you spoke the truth. When the man spits the words out, he then tells him what question that answer answers, and it's not the one about eternal life. He says to the man, do this and you shall live. What's Yeshua here to do? Bring you life. And when you really look at that passage, what you can hear Yeshua saying to the man is, sir, what business do you have asking about eternal life? You're already dead. There is no life in you. You parrot words about love, but notice you want to test me. You're living in a hostility and fear-based mind. You've lost your human life. Here, listen to your own words. And in Aramaic, it doesn't say your neighbor as yourself, but rather in order to maintain self. If you have this condition of Rachma, the gateway for human life, 
and you think about the Creator or you think of neighbor, and in Aramaic, neighbor means anybody that you think about, if you maintain that condition, then you maintain your human life. This is how you have a human life. If hostility or fear comes in when you think of the Creator or neighbor, you've lost your human life, and Rachma is the key to regaining it, opening the gateway for human life to re-enter. And so he's speaking about what's at the cause level, orita, where you know, the minds of the day are saying, Namosa, what's, what's, what, what's the most important custom we can tell these people? And he's giving them back, no guys, we need to go to cause law, not affect beliefs. Mm. You know, it gets so juicy when I listen to him, all these... It's like ideas rise up like corks on a lake and some of them just kind of fall to the side because bigger ideas come. Uh, neighbor, we'll have to get back to that a little too. Orita, what does that sound like? Ora, oreta, ora is that word light again. Ta genders the word feminine. This is a feminine law of light. What's the difference? Um, commandments. Does anybody know where the Ten Commandments? They're they're Christian or they're they're uh, Jewish, right? How many versions are in the the Torah and or the Old Testament? Anybody know how many commandment versions? Three. Mm. Anybody know where they come from? They come from the Egyptian Book of the Dead, Spell 125, direct translation. Funny, a lot of people don't know these things, but this is what's more important when we use Namosa, which is a framework to live within. Yeshua wasn't here laying down laws for you to live within. He wasn't here to give you fresh commandments that are fresh fences for you to live within. You're fine as long as you stay in the fence. No, no, no. He was telling you to basically tear the fences down because the law is not something that you live within. The law lives through you when you let all else fall away. And the orita is the law of light that lives through you. And it's funny that he gets asked, what's the greatest of the commandments, which is also the word puktana in Aramaic, the commandments. What are the things I'm supposed to live within? And he doesn't even answer the question, which is a funny thing that happens to me in a lot of events. People ask me a question and I ask them a question and they're like, oh no, it's one of those kinds of people, huh? Because a lot of times the questions that are asked are often loaded with, not loaded, well yeah, they're loaded. It's like people ask certain things and having no real, I say this in, in just absolute love, no real knowledge of the extent of how many roots are in certain questions that they ask. And I know that if I give a really accurate answer sometimes that's comprehensive and accurate and authentic, either it's going to blow their brains out of their head, I mean that in a more of a metaphorical belief system sense, or it's going to send them in, you know, they're going to, it's going to be a catalyst and they're going to go into turmoil because they don't know that and they're not going to, how to re- know how to remove that and they're going to look at me and go, it's your fault. Intriguingly, Rachma is exactly that. In the fifth beatitude, Tuvehun lem Rachmade, Denehun Nehun Rachma. Intriguingly, this is the one that's translated as, Blessed are those who give mercy, for they shall obtain mercy. All I can say about the word mercy is I know it's really intimate for people that maybe were raised Roman Catholic, but that's like a 1% out of a 100% translation of that word. Okay? Let me give you an example of what I mean. Um, Let's say as an example that you've done a lot of this work and you've spent decades or even just a, a lot of commitment in removing your bushel baskets. And then you are, as an example, 
standing in front of someone, the, the perfect example for me is when I, when I do water healing processes, I go into this place where it's like I'm not really there. It's just a complete shining forth of heat and light from the inner womb. And I don't mean my womb, I mean the center point of everything. And it's almost like I'm not there. And what happens is some people have amazing experiences of love and light and some people have experiences of absolute chaos and turmoil. And often they'll drop on the ground and they'll go through what Reverend Ron Roth called flight of the spirit, where there's like, almost like a recalibration happening. When you stand in front of someone, as an example, if you're willing to be that light, you're willing to be Rachma in the presence of something that appears absolutely chaotic, just because you walk up to someone, let's say that you haven't talked to in 20 years, because they thought you said that awful thing that you never said, just because you're willing to go up to that person and be in that conscious, active, and present love does not mean that they're going to go, ooh, look, roses and sunshine, let me hug you and kiss you, I forgive you. Okay, what's going to happen is you become a catalyst that light is going to bring up anything unlike itself in that moment. The key for you is that you, number one, keep your breath moving and you allow this process to happen. It doesn't necessarily mean they're going to look at you and all of a sudden it's going to be like, you know, this romantic comedy and, oh, you know, like Brooke or Bo Derek running down the beach in a bikini or something. It doesn't always work like that. The key is can you stay open? Can you have the first law in mind to be open in the moment of uh, all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your soul, all of your strength. And of course, I know he's going to run. Heart, of course, is the word liba in Aramaic, which means one way of saying is source of thinking, but it's more unconscious. What's happening below the surface, below the conscious level, all of your mind, which of course is your thought, all of your strength. And I wanted to say this because of this. That word strength in Aramaic is hylak. Now, interesting, hylak is again chaya, which is the word life. And it's also resurrection and save and all these other things. Body, temple, church, haikla. Um, intriguingly, that, if you look at that in Aramaic, it's not telling you to hold on with your strength. It ain't like hold on to Jesus. It's exactly the opposite. It's actually a willingness that when you let go and you allow, as I said, your temple to be open, what did Yeshua say before Many of his healings, he said, Eitz be open. Meaning, drop whatever it is that's going on for you, your beliefs, what you think needs to happen, whatever you think you've got to let go of, just be open and the law of light will move through you. Remember the, the dots that I was pushing through with the pen and letting the light through? It's exactly the same process. Now, when you drop your own strength of trying to hold on, through your willingness, the strength of life itself will live through you. And that's what Yeshua was talking about. And that's the arita, that's the law of light that lives through you when you're open. And others will recognize that. Some, when they're in the presence of that, uh, it might not look so good. You know, if, well, I was going to say if Minnie Pearl walked into this room, not everybody would be happy. I think some of you would run because she died like 20 years ago. But what I'm saying is like, you know, the howdy, you know, and she had the hat with the tag on it. Not everybody likes to be around somebody like that. Some people, that gets their hackles going because this starts resonating, all this stuff. Or Dolly Parton or somebody that's really wide open. Everybody knows someone that's wide open and you don't, maybe you don't quite feel comfortable being that open and you kind of shrink back. It's not going to change the catalyst or the fact that the law of light is in process, but it's do you know how to forgive what's coming up or do you not? And that's what the key is in the whole process. You know. Or 
are you controlled by unconscious dynamics? Mm. If you come into that space where there is that flow of light, it's empowering. And when you get to new levels of vitality, what yesterday you were able to hold down all of a sudden starts to move. And if you're not able to or you don't have the tools to open that unconscious part of the mind, then you'll be run from that part of the mind. And it's interesting, you know, uh, the Nobel Prize was given to Freud for discovering the unconscious. Freud no more discovered the unconscious than fly in the air. You can go back to the Aramaic language and the whole representation of the unconscious is built even right into the language. For instance, there's a suffix in Aramaic that if you add it to a word, O-O-T-A, that means that something from the unconscious is controlling three things. Your perception, your decisions, and your behaviors. Anybody ever said to yourself after you did a behavior, I don't know why I did that? It's because it was run from something that was resonated in the unconscious. And if it's out of harmony with the truth of who you are, if you want to stop being run by your unconscious, you've got to be willing to crack open your unconscious, which is what Aramaic forgiveness does. You know, we're taught that forgiveness in this culture, virtually everyone's been taught that forgiveness is about how you did something terrible to me, but it's okay, I'll let you off the hook. And of course, I can let a million people off the hook for what's happening inside of me, and I've got nothing to address or change what's happening inside of me. Forgiveness in Aramaic, when you substitute in your mind in order to overcome generations and generations of deep level programming, that forgiveness is about letting them off the hook or letting yourself off the hook, never forgive anybody ever again. Never forgive yourself for anything because you can't. You can pardon somebody, you can let somebody off the hook, you can let yourself off the hook, but that has nothing to do with forgiveness. Think the word remove when you think forgiveness. Now you're on track. Am I, is there something moving from my center that's based in hostility or fear? Then I want to learn to be responsible and forgive that, remove that, elsewise it will run my perception, which is the guide for my earthly life, my decisions. Decisions are things that cut us off from op options. You know, decide comes from the same root as suicide, homicide, fratricide. It means to cut off or to kill off. So when we're in decisions, we have the potential of the feedback of the whole of the creation guiding us and we're stuck in the 9-bit mind and whatever the 9-bit mind did yesterday it's going to prompt you to do today from that unconscious level. That's a decision. This thing is just a decision-making machine and it only knows how to replicate the past. There's no future in the past. It just plays out over and over and over again. And then, because your decisions are made, then your behaviors are established. I've come to believe that the unconscious is a totally unnatural condition for a human being. We are not designed to have an unconscious. That veil that they spoke about breaking down of the temple is our temple. It's not about a purple curtain in the church. And it is the barrier that we build when we hold our breath, refuse to allow the breath to move whatever's in us, show it to us, so that we can remove it if we choose to. 
So it becomes a whole different game when you see the application of these tools as opposed to a nice philosophy that speaks about mimosa, a result or a custom that you better live up to or you're going to get punished for it. Fear-based teachings. Nothing to do with the Creator. Nothing to do with love. You can go back into the Old Testament and you hear even back then, here's the Creator speaking to humans saying, fear is a commandment of men. It's a principle established by men. If anybody's talking to you about the Creator and brings anything to do with fear into the game, they're lying to you. Or they just don't know any better. But it's not, it's not accurate. It's their own unconscious dynamics. And it becomes the customs that are forced onto people. You better do this or you better do that. And you'll notice that most of those customs make a lot of money for the people who enforce them. If you've looked at the private prison system in America, you see the effect of the customs of the people and men making more and more rules to collect more and more money from more and more people's pockets. When we remove that unconscious dynamic and connect directly to the source, then we're not motivated to have to live out of that insanity because the unconscious is gone. Mm. Man, there's so many places to, to move in on that. Yeah. Um, Maybe we should do a month of this. We could do a month. Easily. Everybody else would then be out of the room. Then we'd have to do six months. Everybody, the room would be empty by then, but the two of us would still be in here just yak, 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 yak. No. Um, here's, there's just so much, there's so much rich, rich in there. Um, there was one thing in particular that you said that, I think we, we go get back to this at some point too, the Utah. Yes. Um, maybe tomorrow, but um, I wrote that down. Speaking of this, you know, this law of light and this being lived through, there's, a, there's an idea that has been foisted upon you. One of those is that fear God thing. That word is tedkal or tedkul. Kul means whole. Okay? Now let me explain what the ted, tedkul or tedkul means. You know, like, let's say that you're walking in an alleyway and all of a sudden you get halfway in it and something goes crack and you go <gasps> remember what I talked about the pinnacle of the temple okay now your temple opens this is not fight or flight okay your temple opens up now you just had a catalyst brought into the system now if you're a person with all kinds of junk from the echoes of your hidden past that are based in fear, that's going to come up and all of a sudden you're going to realize you're scared ruthless, right? But if when the, t the temple opens is, is a pretty, it's probably a pretty clear response, the temple opens up and you don't have the junk in there, what's actually happening? You're firing on all cylinders. Your temple's open. Ted Kula had nothing to do with fearing God. It had to do with your temple being open so that you are so in resonance with the whole that there's no separation. There is nothing to fear. And it's not even quite accurate that there's nothing to fear but fear itself. No, you don't even have to fear fear itself. I mean, that's a lie. It's a great line, I know. There's nothing to fear but fear itself. I love you, buddy. But um, He's a great man, but that one's not quite on. But he did, he did hit something close to the head. Now, here's the thing, though. This has a lot to do with something else that was foisted upon us. And that's the idea of original sin. And I mentioned a little, or I think I mentioned it, or maybe it was talking with someone that, you know, there's no such thing as original sin. Original sin is a myth. It's the thing in the garden that was the top to shot level metaphorical 
storyline, but sin and, well, let's say good, evil, and sin. I just want to say a little bit about this. Um, <clears throat> first of all, uh, there's no word in Aramaic and not even really in Hebrew for good. There's tuv. Now, here's the thing about tuv. This is one of the biggest issues that you have when you study first century meanings versus modern meanings. Because if you go, like as an example to me, a modern descendant Aramaic speaker like Syriac or whatever it is that you're finding, a Syrian, you're going to find today's meanings. You're not going to find first century meanings. And uh, I, I, I'm going to put this down. I just went, I had such an interesting experience. It was about five years ago when I uh, met a, a, a native uh, Assyrian Aramaic family and they told me about how they had such a pride in their culture because it was in the mid-19th century that they were started to bring the Aramaic language back and what they did was they laid the King James Bible next to their Aramaic Bible and they cross-referenced a 17th century translation from 1611 to find meaning in their own language. And I, like my whole being went, it shuddered. And I'm like, well, that explains why I talk to some native Aramaic speakers today and they have no idea of the actual authentic first century roots. They have no idea what a lot of the meanings are. And then you've got this, like, you know, California surfer Jesus coming and telling them deeper insights on that. Some don't take that kindly because they think I'm like... And here's the thing, though. I wasn't raised with it, so I'm able to see things that I think some people maybe wouldn't see. But this, this idea of sin and good and evil, that word that was translated as good, tuv, okay, is an interesting word. It doesn't mean good. There's no word for good, okay? Good is an interesting thing because as soon as you say, this is good, what does your mind do without you realizing it? This is bad. Your mind, probably almost every time, instantaneously kicks itself in half. Yeshua says, do not doubt. What does the word doubt mean? The word is tetplug in Aramaic, and, and tetplug means divide. Do not divide. Remain single. Now, you've got this word good. It could mean goodness. Goodness is interesting. Okay? Goodness is an interesting term because if I say she radiates goodness, that's not really a judgment so much as it's almost like an awareness of a process rather than some kind of stagnant judgment. Okay? I'm going to explain good and evil and sin to you right now with bananas. Okay, I've got three bananas here. You didn't know sin had anything to do with bananas, right? You had nothing, nothing. Apples, Apples too, but bananas, bananas are a little easier to pull this off with. Now, this one here is evil, okay? It's not completely evil, but it's pretty evil. That one, that could be pretty evil. It's not completely evil, but that's pretty evil. This one here is pretty good, the one in the middle. What? So, good is this. What that word good means in Aramaic and Hebrew, what it means in any Semitic language, Akkadian, Phoenician, Sumerian, a lot of Semitic languages that people, you know, that are language experts have never even studied, it means ripe. Let's look at it this way. This green banana is going to be perfectly ripe at exactly 10 a.m. this Friday morning. It'll be perfectly ripe. Can I do that 100% accuracy? Is it possible? Nope. Now, how about this one? Can I say, okay... Last Friday morning at exactly... T Let's try this way. Can I look at this one that looks overripe? This would be considered evil, bisha, which is also an archery term that means off-target. Okay? Can I find this and look at it and say, okay, at exactly 
at exactly 10 a.m. Friday morning, this was perfectly ripe. Can I do that with 100% accuracy? No. When's the only time you can judge fruit as being ripe? In the moment. It's right now. I'm going to bring it to my nose and I'm going to smell it, sink my teeth into it. Ripeness is only possible now. And that's what goodness means. The word good doesn't mean good as opposed to bad. It means fully, wholly, ripe and present in this moment. When Yeshua talked about ripe soil and arid soil or bisha soil, he was talking about the difference between fully, wholly present in this moment or not in the moment. The only thing that evil means is I'm not awake, I'm not aware right now in this moment. Okay? Now, intriguingly, the word sin is very close as well. Sin is the word cheta, and what cheta, sin, means is miss the mark. So you've got good, you've got evil, and you've got sin. And a lot of people don't even realize that the good and the evil that you've been fed through Christianity is actually a complete system of lies. Have, have you actually studied the history of it? you understand what I'm saying about ripeness, though, and good and evil? Good means open in the presence of the moment, ripe. Unripe, and this is much like a system. You can look at on the, let me show it on here briefly. You could say, it's almost like a line, and this is a judgment, of course, and you could say that somewhere in here, when it's down here, it's evil. There's a green banana. When it's over here, it's evil. It's overripe. But when you are not in the future, not in the past, but wholly present in the space of this now moment, that's when you experience ripeness, and that's where goodness comes from, and that's the tuv that Yeshua spoke of, which is the root of an amazing word that sounds like this, tuvehun, which, and then we probably have to close after that. I'm going to turn it back to you, but yeah, we're tuvehun. So thinking in terms of the target, when I fired, and, and sin is an Aramaic word, that when I fire at the target and I miss the bullseye, the scorekeeper yells sin. I'm off the mark. 